Let's turn our Bibles to that passage in John's Gospel. You may want to thank the members of the choir for singing tonight and our own Colin for his arrangement of that piece, Abide With Me. Well, we're, we're on the 19th chapter of John's Gospel. Nearly 2,000 years or have passed since Jesus Christ died on that Roman cross, and His followers have domesticated His passion. Cross is no longer a symbol of savage and cruel act of torture, but a piece of jewelry perhaps worn round someone's neck in bronze or silver or gold or perhaps even wood. It's a record of how far we have come from the events themselves that we can pass a building with a cross on it and not be appalled or shocked at the sight of it. But all the ancient sources testify how the cross was universally held in revulsion. People who were crucified often took days to die. Stretched out on the wooden frame, they would pull on their arms while pushing uh, on their uh, legs or on their feet in order to keep their chest cavity open enough to breathe. Then excruciating, and our word excruciating comes from the word crucis, cross, muscle spasms would set in and they would sag, letting their bonds or their nails take the weight until the need for oxygen drove them once more to pull against the pain, to get a breath. Victims died of heart failure, of exhaustion, of shock. And if for some reason death had to be hastened, then the soldiers only needed to break the victim's legs, and soon suffocation followed almost immediately. As we've looked at chapter 10 of John, in the section immediately preceding the one we were looking at this evening, we saw the cross as central to that section, Jesus being taken to the cross, Jesus being nailed on the cross. We, we saw that was center, and it is, in fact, the center of Christianity. It is the center of Jesus' own thinking. He's regularly telling people, this is what lies ahead. He's regularly telling them. And there's a sense of which, as we read the story of the crucifixion, last time. There is a kind of matter-of-factness about it. This was the way it was going to be. This is how we have seen it. John is saying to the people he's writing to, we have seen, you've all seen this. You've gone past a crucified person as they've been put on the cross. Nobody can avoid it. Nobody can escape it, living as we do in the Roman Empire. There's a matter-of-factness. It was built into the ordinary stuff of life. And tonight, as we pick up the story, we pick it up after the unjust trial, after the vicious scourging has taken place, after the excruciating crucifixion has occurred, and we find Jesus now on the cross, and the next stage in the drama is the death of Jesus Himself. His death is now the focus of the story, and we, we find that in verse 28 that after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, it's His death now that lies ahead. And as we look at this section, I want to look at what happens before His death, 
what happens at his death, and what happens after his death. First of all, before his death, Jesus utters two words. After Jesus, after this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said, to fulfill the Scripture, I thirst. When He'd first been put on the cross, the Gospels tell us, He had been offered a, a mix of wine vinegar that was designed to dull the pain and act as a kind of anesthetic to the victim hanging on the cross. It was not done, by the way, out of any compassion for the victim. It was done to prolong the victim's uh, experience of the cross for the show that it made to everybody else as a warning. This is what happens to you under Roman rule if you break the law. But now that his major sufferings are over, now that he has arrived at the point of death, now that Jesus knows that everything is now finished, in the run-up to the end, he calls for a drink, this time not to anesthetize him, but to moisten his lips and his parched throat in order that he might say his last words. And in saying, I thirst, Jesus is drawing attention to the fact of a great contrast. Here is the one who earlier on in John's gospel had said to people, if anybody is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He is thirsty so that we might never go thirsty. He is on the cross now thirsting from blood loss, thirsting as He reaches the point of death, so that men and women everywhere and anywhere, hearing His name, may come to Him and find satisfaction for their thirsty souls, looking for satisfaction and meaning in life. Come to Me, Jesus said. But not only that, not only that, but this one is the one from whose side will flow rivers of living water. Jesus is thirsty so that our thirst can be quenched. He bears the curse of thirst in order that our thirst and desires might be fully satisfied and quenched in Him. His second word, is even more significant. Let's read on. Full of, he takes the drink, and when he had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished, and bowed his head and gave up the ghost. Now, the other Gospels fill in some details here. They actually explain why he took the drink, because when Jesus had cried out, we're told in Luke's Gospel, when he had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And Luke's comment about the way in which this last word of Jesus was spoken is quite crucial in understanding what's going on here. In a loud voice, he cries out, Tetelestai, finished, done, accomplished, paid, whatever translation you want, it means all of those things. It is, a, it is a fundamental word. All His reserved 
all his last energy is poured into this one cry. He is finished. It's a repeat of that word we saw in verse 28. He knew that that everything was finished. And now he cries out, finished, accomplished. We know that this cry comes after Jesus has emerged from that three-hour darkness in which he finds himself exposed to the judgment of God. A darkness that could be felt over the entire region. A darkness that is commented on by outside sources. A darkness that is reminiscent of the darkness that came upon Egypt when the plagues and judgment of God fell on Egypt under Moses. Here is Jesus in that period, as the other Gospels tell us, suffering uh, separation from God, suffering the wrath of God on behalf of His people. It pleased the Lord to bruise Him in that midday darkness. Now that He's experienced that darkness on our behalf, now that He has been exposed to the curse of God by being hung upon a tree, now that He has taken our place, now that He has borne our sins and our sorrows and made them His very own and borne the burden to Calvary and suffered, now He must die for His people. And having finished His mission, the mission that He within the Trinity had decided before uh, the foundation of the world, that within the Trinity there is this great decision that that the Son will come into the world, will assume our humanity, will become a second and last Adam, will come into the world and be born of a woman and made under the law, would come and would act in a covenant of works relationship with His Father as a human being and as a creature. And Him having now come into the world, Him now having taken on our flesh, Him having now overcome Satan by obedience instead of disobedience, Him having kept the Word of God, Him having been obedient and righteous through all His dealings, now that He comes to this point, having finished that work, having stood in on our behalf, having taken our place, having obeyed where we disobeyed, and having now shed blood for us on the cross as He has made a sacrifice for our sins. Now He cries, finished, done. There is nothing needing to be added to this work. There is nothing for you and I left to do for this salvation. There is no work that needs to be performed. There is no action that needs to be taken. There is no ceremony that needs to be observed. There is no other sacrifice that needs to be offered. There is nothing now left to be done. Finished, Jesus says. We cannot top that. We cannot add to that. We cannot put in a caveat to that. Finished, Jesus says. And He has accomplished the work for us. And tonight we celebrate the finished work of Christ. Our Savior's obedience and blood hide all our transgressions from view. His obedience 
for my disobedience, His blood for my sin. He has been obedient in His active life throughout all of His life, keeping the law where human beings broke the law, where Adam broke the law. Now He's obedient to death, even death on the cross. And there on the cross, shedding the blood that is being given for a ransom for many. Finished, He says. Done. And if you look to Jesus tonight, if you trust in Jesus this evening, if you are putting all your eggs in the basket of the Lord Jesus tonight, then you have all that is necessary to bring you to God. He has done all that is necessary to bring you to God. He has accomplished everything that is necessary to bring you to God. All your debts, they're paid, finished, everything accomplished for our salvation. And with that cry issuing from his lips, he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Luke tells us that. Matthew says he gave up his spirit. John says he bowed his head as if going to sleep and gave up his spirit. In the end, there is an anticlimax. The climax is in that word, tetelestai, finished. And now that it's done, Jesus in peaceful, trusting, faith, faithful repose rests his head and goes to his Father. It's an amazing thing. The very language that's used, giving up his spirit, underlines the absolute sovereignty of Jesus over the exact moment of his own death. It was at this moment that he gave his life as a ransom for many. And it's John who was there, an eyewitness who tells us what that cry was, that it was completed and done. And there as Jesus died, God condemned sin in the flesh of Jesus. God laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Jesus Christ becomes a curse for us to redeem us from the curse of the law. God is in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. There is the Lamb of God dying to bear away the sin of the world. <laughs> in the 18th century, a great preacher called Charles Simeon, uh, at that stage was an undergraduate at King's College, Cambridge, and he became conscious of his own lack of real experience of forgiveness of sins and knowledge of God. And he began to read a book on the Passion Week by a certain Bishop Wilson on the sacrifice of Christ Charles Simeon tells us that as he read that book, a thought came to my mind. What? May I transfer all my sin to another? Has God pro provided an offering for me that I may lay all my sins on His head? Then, God willing, I will not bear them on my soul one moment longer. Accordingly, I sought to lay my sins 
on the sacred head of Jesus. And what Charles Simeon did, you may do. You may lay all of your sins on the sacred head of Jesus. That's what the death of Jesus accomplishes. That's what the cross makes possible. He cries out in victory, a cry of triumph, a shout of accomplishment, and then he bows his head and dies. Then at his death, we now look at verse 30, 31. At his death, the Old Testament had a law. If a man has committed a sin worthy of death, and he is put to death, and you hang him on a tree, his corpse shall not hang all night on the tree, but you shall surely bury him on the same day, for he who is hanged is accursed by God. That was Deuteronomy 21. The Romans typically left their crucified victims to hang for days. They, they were a kind of advert against breaking any of Rome's laws. They were saying, don't mess with us. This is how you'll end up. And uh, even then, they refused to bury them and usually threw them into a, an open grave, a mass grave. But once again, we find these Jewish authorities who don't have any problem with having an innocent man, a man they knew to be innocent, killed. But here they are now preoccupied with the minutiae of one of the bits of their law. Blind to their greater sin, they have crucified God the Son. They're now working hard to avoid a lesser infringement of their law. Look at verse 31. Since it was the day of the preparation, and so that the bodies would not remain in the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a high day, the Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken and that they might be taken away. And so it was that the soldiers set about their gruesome task. And we note two things about their dealings with Jesus' body at this point. First of all, that his bones are not broken. The soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who'd been crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus, they saw, and the language suggests they were quite surprised to see that he was already dead. And so they did not break his legs. Now, that has a value of an eyewitness notice uh, account. But why is it significant? Why does John mention it? Not only to let us know that he was there and saw that's what happened, but why is it significant that his bones weren't broken? Well, says John, because it fulfills Scripture. And the significance lies in the laws that were associated with the Passover. Right at the very beginning of John's gospel, you remember in chapter 1? Well, you may not remember. It's been 91 sermons ago. But in chapter 1, you have John the Baptist twice point to Jesus and say, Behold the Lamb of God. Another occasion, Behold the Lamb of God who will take away the sin of the world. The significance of that is that he was identifying Jesus as the Passover lamb. And so in the rest of John's gospel, John is interested in what happens around the Passover. Now the Passover lamb has been sacrificed. But it was built into the law about the Passover lamb that the Passover lamb did not have any broken bones. 
You couldn't come to Passover and offer a lamb which had only one ear or three legs. It had to be perfect. It had to be perfect. And here on the cross, the Passover lamb whose blood delivers the people of God from the angel of death, Jesus, our true Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us, and not one bone of his body is broken. His bones are not broken, but his side is pierced. There's a reference to the spear that was thrust into his side. Now, remember I described last time that a crucified victim was not far off the ground. His feet, perhaps a foot. Uh, His feet, perhaps one foot off the ground. So, he's quite close to the ground, which is why people could hear him speaking, and he could hear them and converse with them. There was no way he could get off the cross, but the people who were on the ground near him could see everything that is going on. And so it was, not a, it was not hard for a soldier with a spear to stick a spear up his side. And the suggestions are that the spear likely pierced his pericardium, and that because of the, uh, the abrupt nature of his death and the kind of stress that had been upon his body, the clot and serum that had gathered in the pericardium had separated, and that as the spear was pierced through the pericardium, what flowed out looked to the untrained eye like red clot and clear serum. Whether that's the explanation or not is irrelevant. That's not John's interest here, but it may well suggest what happened. But John's interest goes back to to identifying Jesus as the Lamb of God. The writer to the Hebrews reflects on the Old Testament and says, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Two things go hand in hand in the death of Jesus. One is the shedding of His blood on the one hand, and the cleansing, the washing that Jesus brings with Him into our lives. And there's a sense in which the water and the blood, what looked like blood, what was looked like water, the clot and serum that people saw, as it were, flowing from his wounded side, goes all the way back to that passage that I mentioned earlier, if any man thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Jesus has the cleansing. He has the refreshing that we need. Back in chapter 3, those who are born again are born of water and, and, and the Spirit. The, the, the Spirit cleanses. The, the blood of Jesus cleanses. There's this cleansing element because the blood is shed. And those two things are brought together. Back in the Old Testament, you have a description there of the final temple. It's a perfect temple. And out of that perfect temple, there flows a river that brings healing and life to the nations. And Jesus has been presented in John's gospel as the final temple. And from the temple of His body flows the blood that provides the cleansing and the water, as it were, that brings the healing to the nations. At his death, his bones are not broken, 
and his side is pierced. And then thirdly, after his death, Jewish law required the body of an executed prisoner to be buried before sundown when the Jewish day ended. But Jesus' relatives did not possess a tomb in Jerusalem since they came from Galilee. But we read about this man, Joseph of Arimathea. He was a rich man. He was a member of the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, and he was one of those covert followers of Jesus. He may not have been there in that uh, late night, early morning trial that was held. It seems to have been an illicit trial. It seems to have been done on the side. It seems to have been only handpicked people who were there, and Joseph, perhaps being known as a sympathizer at least of Jesus, perhaps wasn't there. Anyway, whatever fears he had, Whatever reasons he had never to have come out in public and said, I am with Jesus, have now evaporated at Jesus' death. Actually, at the most dangerous moment, his fears evaporate. Because now Jesus is not there to intervene as far as he's concerned. But at this moment, he is the one who boldly goes and asks the authorities if he may have Jesus' body and minister to it by burying it. The other gospels tell us that some women helped him as they took the body down and wrapped it up and took it to a tomb that he owned in a graveyard nearby. Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus, to these two men, who had been silent in many ways, are now publicly going, on, putting their lives on the line. Not only that, but they treat the body of Jesus like the body of a king. We've seen this idea of kingship going on right throughout this chapter. Here it comes up again. They use over a hundred pounds of special precious spices in order to wrap the body of Jesus. That's an enormous amount of expensive, very expensive spices to use. These men must have been very wealthy men to afford them. This is the kind of, this is the kind of thing that would, would have been used of a king, a public figure of some note, far, far more than anything that would have normally been required for an ordinary visitor. As these two men emerge from the shadowlands and come now into public, they are determined that they will take their stand with the king, even if the king is dead. They will take their stand with the king, and they will bury him like a king. They take their stand with a dead corpse because they realize that he is the king. and that he's worthy of a king's burial. We sometimes sing a hymn that has these words in it, drops of grief can ne'er repay the debt of love I owe. Here, Lord, I give myself away. Tis all that I can do. And as we reach the end of it, we, we pause now at the end of this great focus on the death of Jesus 
We think about that word finished that secures our everlasting life, our eternal salvation, and we bank everything on that. And having banked everything on that, having found in His death, Christ died for my sins. We find the motivation now to put our lives on the line for Him. We find the motivation now to join Him, to align ourselves with Him, to take on ourselves the scandal of the cross, to allow ourselves to look in the language of the Apostle Paul as if we are the foolish of the world. The world in its wisdom did not know God. We take our stand with the folly of the preached cross, the foolishness of the preaching of the cross, believing that the cross that is folly to the Gentiles and and a stumbling block to the Jews is in fact the power and wisdom of God and can bring salvation to the world. Thanks be to God that He went to the cross, that He died on the cross, that He was buried, crucified, dead, and buried. And by taking that route, brought salvation to us. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for the work of our Savior, the Lord Jesus. We look at the cross and we say, wounded for me, wounded for me. There on the cross, He was wounded for me. Gone my transgressions. Now I am free. For there on the cross, Jesus was wounded for me. Thanks be to God. Amen.